0: All right. Uh, thanks, Cindy. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We'll be in Philippians again, chapter 2. If you're using a Pew Bible, it's page 980. 980. So I went to a, a school that was about 30 minutes from our house, kindergarten through senior year of high school. And uh, so every day I would ride in the car with my, one of my parents, whoever was driving that day, and pretty much without fail on the way home, my mom would, you know, I might be in the back or in the front depending on how old I was at the time, but pretty much every day. Uh, K through twelve, she would say at some point in the car ride, "What are you thinking about?" <laughs> and it just drove me nuts, because like as a kid, you don't, for one, you don't want to tell your mom what you're thinking about, and secondly, as a kid, you're not usually thinking about anything. <laughs> um. So that was that was her attempt at a at a conversation starter. Um, Anna and I have recently kind of. Rediscovered that as a conversation starter, and so instead of "What are you thinking about?" it's "What have you been thinking about lately?" (laughs) And it's it actually works a lot better than "Hey, how are you?" Like it's it's a little bit more of a "Oh, what have I been thinking about lately?" Hmm. Let me actually think about that and tell you. Um, Why do I say all that? The power of thinking. The power of our minds. And so we're in Philippians. And if, if you have grown up in the church or been familiar with the book of Philippians at any time previously, you might, when you, when you hear the word Philippians, when you, when you hear about the book of Philippians, you might think joy. A lot of times that's kind of, when people bring up Philippians, it's yeah, it's the book about joy in the gospel. And that is somewhat true. The the theme of joy and rejoicing does span the entire letter of Philippians. The word joy is used five times. The word rejoice is used seven times. But joy is not the primary theme of this letter. Joy is actually the primary byproduct of something else. And that something else that spans the entire letter as well is the concept of right thinking. The word thinking, mindset, uh, in words like, it's the same word, but in English it's kind of hard to portray in all these different places, but it's used 10 times throughout this letter. From the beginning to the very end, in each key passage, this word is used. And in our passage this morning, it's used twice. What we give our thoughts to as human beings, carries a lot of weight. What we think about, it's powerful. There's a reason people say, you can do anything you put your mind to. That's, a lot of times it's true. Singular focus and attention, it's powerful. It's potent. It's potent for change. It's potent, it's potent. It's a powerful force in our lives, whether for good or bad. You know, think about at work. If you have a project coming up at work, a presentation maybe, or maybe you have a conversation that's on the calendar that's going to be a hard one with like a close friend or a family member that you know it's going to be a little bit intense. Maybe there's some conflict there that you need to resolve. When you have that forthcoming thing, what you think about as you prepare, as you, as you approach that event is powerful. You know, think if you have a presentation, if you're thinking about how incompetent you are to deliver a presentation, how is that going to affect your ability to deliver it, to be confident in your presentation? Or if, you, if you're thinking about, I'm not good at handling conflict, that's I, 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 just not my gift, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this conversation well, is that going to affect how that conversation goes. Yes. But if you were to think, you know, I've got this presentation at work. I, instead of thinking about how incompetent I am, I'm going to think about how great an opportunity this is. Thank you, God, that I have this opportunity to give this presentation. Or if you have this conversation coming up with a loved one, I love this person. How, If you think about how much you love this person versus how little, you, you know, how not good you are at conflict, how much will that affect that conversation? If it comes from a place of having thought about how much you love them, thinking is powerful. What we put our minds on is powerful. That's why one of Paul's last encouragements in this letter is, In verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let your minds dwell there. Not here, not, not in the filth, and the darkness. No, let, them, let your minds dwell on this. Paul desperately wants the Philippian church back in 60 AD, but by extension, our church, to move forward in proclaiming and embodying the gospel. How does he suggest we do this? We see in our passage today, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, a simple charge. Basically, he says, adopt a gospel mindset. Adopt a gospel mindset. But how does he say we do it? First, we see him say we adopt a gospel mindset by experiencing the gospel ourselves first. You need to actually like the gospel in order to adopt a gospel mindset and to go forward in the gospel. You have to actually know it. You have to actually experience it. It has to be good to you before you start laying it before others. Second, we adopt a gospel mindset by prioritizing the gospel as a community. That this is what our church is for. Our church is for the gospel. That's why it exists. Third, we adopt a gospel mindset by embracing gospel-shaped relationships with one another. That we need to actually treat each other as Jesus wants us to treat each other. Okay, so we're going to look at those three categories this morning. But first, let's read it. So go ahead and look at Philippians chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Dear Father, I just, I cannot convey how good you are with my words. So Lord, I pray that your word and your spirit would impact each of us afresh this morning. That we would understand a little bit more or a lot more your gospel and how good it is and how good you are, and how wonderful you are. Please do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so just to review a little bit, Paul is writing from prison. He's probably in Rome. It's the year 60 AD, 60 AD. This is a long time ago. The church in Philippi, which is in northern Greece, Heard about Paul being in prison, and so they sent him a wicker basket full of goodies or something like that. They sent him something good, and he's writing a letter back. He's writing a response to this gift that they sent. He's thankful. And so his response is a friendship letter, giving personal updates on himself, giving friendly exhortation, encouragement to them, as well as just plain old saying thank you. This is a canonical thank you letter. So in verse 27, just a few verses earlier than this, Paul has shifted gears. You know, we started off the first uh, 20-some verses giving them basically an update on himself. I'm in prison, but hey, the gospel is still good, and it's still going forward, and turns out the other believers in Rome are like, charged up and pumped up because Paul's in prison and so they're like okay I guess it's me now and they're going and he's he's actually glad about that and so he's giving them an update on him but then he turns and he starts telling them what to focus on in their current season he starts giving them encouragement his primary goal for them being a Roman colony And subject to all the political pressure that that meant as Christians in that environment, he wants them to rightly reckon themselves as citizens of a new kingdom, of a new regime. Not Rome, Jesus, brought about by the gospel. So he's just finished describing his own troubling circumstances, but how God has redeemed them for the gospel. Now he turns and wants them to look at their own circumstances and prioritize the gospel in their context. And so we can take it. We can take it as you know, 2,000 years later, we're still in a context where there's a different empire. There's a different government. We live on this earth under the jurisdiction of other regimes. But hey, there's a new kingdom. And it's been inaugurated. And the ruler is Jesus Christ. And so we can take this exhortation, this encouragement, personally, and go forward. But you'll notice as we continue through this letter, sort of marching through it, we'll finish in June, but the theme of unity with one another Will continue to crop up. It'll continue to be a main point, and the reason is there's actually a, a little elephant in the room here. You know, Paul's writing this response, but he also knows that there's something going on in this church that needs to be addressed. There's a conflict. You know, overall, this Philippian church seems to be a healthy community, but there's a conflict between some of the people in the church. And we find out later in chapter 4 what their names are. But for Paul, he's bummed by this. You know, he, he wants them to get, get past this. He wants them to rightly process conflict within their, their number to be able then to move forward. You know, he, for him, conflict between Christians is a huge bummer, not just because we aren't taking advantage of the resources we have to repent, to forgive one another, to to reconcile with each other, but because when we are distracted by conflict, when we are distracted by what we're doing to others, what others are doing to us that is not right, we're benched for the kingdom. When we're distracted by infighting, we're not taking ground for the gospel and that's what gets Paul down so our passage this morning directly relates to this conflict Paul's primary directive is in verse 2 he says complete my joy by being of the same mind and that that's the word the same mind that's the word that spans the entire book Right thinking, and guess what? When he, when he turns and addresses these two people in their conflict, in verse two of chapter four, he says, "I entreat you, Odea, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord." He says, "Same word. I entreat you guys to think the same thing in the Lord." So that's why this theme of right thinking actually is the thing that, that spans this whole letter. You know, how do we avoid trivial conflict? How do we avoid getting bogged down with icky drama? We adopt a gospel mindset. A gospel headspace. We place the gospel at the forefront of our to-do lists. Priorities we make it the most important thing about us and our church. Let's dive in further. So looking at verse 1 again, the first way we adopt a mindset is by experiencing the gospel ourselves. He goes, so if, (laughs) I love this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, If there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul goes for the heart here at the beginning. He says, have you tasted the goodness of the gospel? Paul just finished telling them how excited he is for the gospel. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I would rather actually die and go be with Christ than be still here. But I guess I'll just hang around for your sake. Paul is just pumped about the gospel of Jesus. He, He just can't contain it. But that's just him. That's just him. So he turns to them now. And he says, so. Let's get back to the basics, he says. Do you remember, or even more importantly, are you still experiencing the goodness of the gospel yourselves? Before I tell you, Paul says, to act out the gospel, has it actually hit you? Is it still hitting you, the goodness of the gospel? Paul doesn't want them to listen to him just because he's their pastor. He wants them to return to the basics again first. He wants them to want it. He wants them to know the encouragement in Christ, the comfort from love, the participation in the Spirit. And like any genuine human being, we don't go hard after anything until we believe in it. It's like me selling co knives can't do it I took a job at age I don't know 18 I don't know when it was but I took a job and I was going to sell cutco knives mind you cutco knives are amazing (laughs) the scissors even more but I took the training they can cut a penny what they they don't dole I mean they're amazing But when I realized that I would have to enlist my network of friends and family to sell something I didn't care about, it really freaked me out, and I quit. I didn't even start. I just quit. Because I didn't believe in it. I couldn't be a salesperson for something that I couldn't get behind. And so Paul wants them to experience the gospel so that it'll light a fire under them again. So first things first, in order to adopt a gospel mindset, we have to experience the gospel ourselves. It's pretty simple. This is always the order of operations. You cannot share God's love if you don't know God's love. You cannot share the gospel if you have not experienced the gospel. Is the gospel what it is? Good news. Is it good news to you? Paul says that every human relationship, every achievement, every status, anything you could achieve in this world, in this life, pales in comparison to knowing Christ, my Lord, he says in chapter 3, verse 8. And so Paul goes there. He asks them point blank, have you experienced it? Notice that each person of the Trinity is at work here. The encouragement in Christ. The comfort from presumably God's love. The participation in the Spirit. That word participation means fellowship. That camaraderie you experience in the Spirit. Do you know the encouragement that's in Christ? Do you know it? How does it manifest? How does it come across? How does it present itself in your life? It's when you know that you can do more through him than you could do by yourself. But at the same time, life isn't all about you anymore. So the encouragement that's found in Christ is a humble confidence that I get to accomplish great things. Yet, it's not I. Who matters anymore? It's Christ. Have you experienced the comfort or the consolation that comes through the love of God? That you are loved just as you are before you do anything for Him. You're loved, you're cherished. That He wants to know you intimately. Similarly to how each person of the Trinity knows and delights in one another. The Father, Son, and Spirit for eternity past have been enjoying the company of one another. God wants to enjoy the company of you. He wants to console you with his love. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced the fellowship of other believers brought about by the Holy Spirit? That when you meet another believer outside these walls, automatically you go, you're my sister, you're my brother. Kaboom. Done. What about within this family? Now, have you experienced the exhilaration of participating with one another in a shared mission empowered by the Spirit? Now if you haven't tasted it in a while or, or haven't tasted it at all, That's not something to feel bad about. It's an invitation. This is available to you. The benefits of the gospel are available to you now. We just sang it. Today is the day. In scripture it says, today is the day of salvation. That your life can be flipped upside down in a crazy and good way today because of the gospel of Jesus Christ available to you now there's an open tab and the bill is already paid drink up you can start there and so at the end of this going back to the basics he says any affection and sympathy he just kind of adds those at the end as a flourish but put together these two words describe the radical longing forgiving and cleansing love of God for us that word sympathy also means mercy. It's the same word in Romans 12:1, when Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercy. He just spent 11 straight dense chapters of Romans extrapolating the mercies of God, the gospel of God, the blood of Jesus that's cleansed you from sin. And he says, therefore, Because of and in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service. This is what makes sense after viewing the mercy of God. It's the same word. It's only when we stare at God's love for us that we will understand the vastness of it. And why it makes so much sense to give him everything in return. And so, that's the first step. And we will always have to return to this step over and over and over again. We need to experience the gospel afresh every day. That's step one. Step two, prioritizing the gospel as a community. In verse two, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so he gives his primary exhortation, his primary encouragement, which is complete my joy by being of the same mind. Complete. That word also means fill up, fill up my joy by doing this. so joy isn't the theme of this letter, but it's a byproduct. And what is it a byproduct of? What is Paul's joy rooted in here? In every instance where Paul uses this word joy in this letter, he refers to the communities he has invested in charging ahead for Jesus. That's what his joy is rooted in. That's the by, his joy is a byproduct of the people that he has shared the gospel with taking it and running. That's, why, that's what gets him out of bed. That's what he's excited about. So how can the Philippians honor Paul? By looking right past him to Jesus. That's how they can complete his joy. In this word of the same mind, he uses it twice here. It sandwiches his exhortation. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Same word. It encapsulates his desire for them. He's trying his hardest to empathize, emphasize something here. He's trying to put an exclamation point right here, right now. You don't say something twice. Twice unless you want someone to really get it. He's trying to help us get it right now. Their progress as a church in their mission, in what they're doing together, it hinges on this concept of adopting a communal gospel mindset. This is what it literally says. This is great. Complete my joy that you may think the same thing, having the same love, joined in soul, thinking the one thing. Thinking the one thing. It reminds me of when Jesus was at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. Martha is sweeping, vacuuming, setting the table, putting away the dishes, doing all the things. And Mary, her sister, is quietly sitting at Jesus' feet, talking to him. And Martha says, hey, Jesus, tell Mary, or, yeah, tell Mary to come help. Tell her to do one thing, like do the, I don't know, put away the laundry or something. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things, but one thing is necessary, and it will not be taken away from her. In this life, there is one thing, just one, one thing that matters. And I'm not saying nothing else matters, all da-da-da-da. No, no. I'm saying there's one thing that matters more than anything else. When Jesus says, if you come after me, you must hate your father and mother, does he really want you to, to like, give your mom and dad the middle finger? No, he doesn't. But he wants you to know the one thing above everything everything else. That's what Paul is saying here. According to Paul, a Jesus community's health and mission depends on them thinking the one thing, the one thought. It's pretty simple. And don't get him wrong. He's not talking about us agreeing on every issue. We don't have to agree on every issue. But We need to agree on the one thing. We need to be 100% about this one thing. For churches, especially post-COVID, there's a lot of squirrels out there. There's a lot of things that people say we need to be about. A lot of people and a lot of voices are clamoring to tell us what we should focus on right now but we're going to focus on the one thing. Nothing is as important as us embodying and proclaiming this gospel. That he lived, that he died, that he was resurrected, that he is building a new community and will return one day to physically rule that community. Don't get me wrong. The gospel isn't a super, let's see, how do I put this? A lot of times in the last several decades to 100 years, the, the evangelical church, of which we are a part, has prioritized the gospel as a golden ticket, as a get-out-of-hell-free card. As a, when you die, you get to go do something cool. As a entrance into heaven. All of this is true. But that does not get across the robustness of what the gospel means. The gospel has, think of it like this, three components. Cross, resurrection, and kingdom. Yes, Jesus died for you. Yes, he rose from the dead so that you could be reunited with God and enjoy eternal fellowship with him forever. But guess what? This kingdom has been inaugurated already. This kingdom is now. And the beauty is when we are adopted into that kingdom, We get to be an outpost of the future. We get to embody this new reality together to a watching and desperate world. That's also part of the gospel. Gospel is a heralding word. It means, guess what? Hey, good news. There's a new leader in town, and he's a good one, much better than the last thousand. And we can obey him, follow him, enjoy his rule now. And how do we do that? We'll get to that. <laughs> but he's building his kingdom. And so for us, that's part of it too. That we embody this to a watching world. We're not just saying, hey guys, get in here. This is a, a capsule that's waiting for heaven. No, no, no. Get in here and we get to love each other as Jesus called us to love each other. This is the new reality. This is the new community. That's the gospel. That Jesus is Lord. And he's Lord over this new community. So that brings us to our last point. Adopting a gospel mindset means embracing these gospel-shaped relationships. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You could just stop there. But do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I believe in my head that God is infinitely wise in his decision-making, okay? But why he decided to primarily use weak, frail human beings like me to accomplish his grand, redemptive plan boggles my mind. But he did, and he does. He wants to use you. He wants to use the church, To accomplish this mission. To make disciples of all nations. Paul understood this. And he understood it personally. In Corinthians, we get a little window into his own wrestling with his own weakness. You know, he had some kind of chronic issue. We don't know what it was. But he called it a thorn in his flesh. And he begged God to remove it. He said, God, this hurts. God, I don't like it. God, I could do more for you if you took this out. Just saying. And what did Jesus say? No. (laughs) Ouch. And then he said, why? Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. God does this on purpose because his power is made perfect in our weakness. It is through our weakness that God demonstrates his perfect power. What? But we're messy. Humans are messy. But that doesn't let us off the hook. You know, in his infinite wisdom, God has ordained that his gospel go forward through the church. A ragtag group of sinful yet redeemed humans empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not my idea. It's His. But again, humans are messy. Church is messy. If any of you have been in church for long enough, you know that. We let each other down. We we hurt one another. Leaders especially. Pastors especially. We elevate our own agendas over that of the gospel. We're sinners. We're in need. We're weak. But this task of of propagating, embodying this gospel has been entrusted to us. Us, plural. Not me. Not any one person. Us. This is a group effort. And the credibility of Jesus is at stake. You know, he said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Man, we've gotten it wrong. And yet, he lifts up our face. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He empowers us to do it. This is hard. I think that's why Paul gets really practical right here. In verse 2, we see that we should prioritize the gospel first and foremost, but that we should do it how? Having the same love, being in full accord. You know, he just mentioned love in verse 1. Comfort from love. Comfort from God's love. Now he says that that same love that you receive from God, you need to share with one another. That we, John says we love because he first loved us. That's the only way we can love is by being loved first. When we love without being loved, it doesn't go well. The cool thing is the comfort that comes from God's love is always available every second of every day. And so in order to practice radical, God-like love for one another, we need to first receive it ourselves. And then full accord, it says. Full accord. We don't really use that these days. But it literally means joined in soul. One-souled. One life. We're not just of one mind. We're of one soul. And this is because of Christ. Christ. Because of what he's done. We looked at it in Ephesians 2. Every human people group that have an issue with each other that has been dealt with at the cross. It says he killed the hostility. America isn't the only country with hostility between people groups. This is a global phenomenon. Jesus took upon himself human hostility itself. And it died with him. And so we can reckon ourselves one because of him. That's the foundation on which we can be at peace and be unified and be one-souled. The Spirit has made us one, period. And then Paul just says, okay, let me get more specific for you because I know this is the hard part. So verses 3 and 4, he draws a couple contrasts. He says, don't behave from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humble others' focus. So don't do this, do this. And then he says, don't put your own interests first, but put others' interests first. This is fairly practical. Selfish ambition there, it means, and this is ouch, it means Filtering all your situations and circumstances through the lens of how it can best benefit you. Anyone do that every day? Selfish ambition. Conceit. Conceit means an overinflated view of yourself. As in, you either think more of yourself than you should or you just plain think about yourself too much. Anyone else? Instead, Paul calls them to humility. And now humility is an easy word to brush over because we've heard it so often and we failed to achieve it so often. But humility means viewing yourself rightly. It's not a self-deprecating thing. It's not a a lack of self-esteem. It's just viewing yourself rightly. And who are you? You are an imperfect, broken person. But who, you, who also are you? You're loved. You're made in the image of God. You're cleansed. You're called. You're empowered by the God whose agenda is more important than yours. That's humility. It's not a beating yourself up, it's not a looking in, in, in the mirror and hating what you see. No, it's looking in the mirror and seeing what God sees. Someone he died for. So he then calls them in humility to count others more significant than themselves. Now, this doesn't mean thinking people are better than you. It's placing more weight on their needs than yours. We naturally place more weight on our own needs than those around us. That's pretty normal. And so what Paul is saying here is, Go ahead and overcompensate. Err on the side of putting more weight on others' needs than yourself. It's not easy. We naturally overestimate our needs relative to others. Paul is calling them to a different posture, he's calling us to a different posture. Wow. This is, I mean, it, it's hard. I mean, come on. Shoot. <laughs> this is some picture. This is some ideal. Do you feel guilty yet? But the point here is not to crush you with guilt. That's not the point. The point is that this is the type of community that God is committed to creating. And he's assigned a member of his own trinity to do it. The Holy Spirit. This, if you're wondering, if you're wondering, where does God want me to grow? Right here. And if you're wondering if he's committed to it, he is. He's committed to helping you be less selfishly ambitious. He's committed To helping you view yourself as he looks at you. He's committed to helping you put others before yourself. He's committed to it. He's inviting you to it. He's he's actually empowering you to it. That's what we can read this like. Even here in our church, he's committed to this. This is a byproduct of the gospel being first and foremost in our minds. This is a byproduct of the gospel being the most important thing about us and our church. The gospel of Jesus has the power to bring forgiveness to our selfishness and empower us to be able to put others before ourselves. We can read these passages with trust and hope. Was I saved based on my good qualities? No. And will, I grow, will my growth as a person to be more like this be based on my own good qualities? No. It's based on His. These are the qualities that if Jesus is really Lord of your life, not just your Savior, not just your golden ticket Willy Wonka go to heaven person, the Lord of your life, changing you, making you something, forming your heart from the inside out. He's doing it. This is power. This is a miracle that he can change selfish people. He can change selfish people to be like him. That's incredible. If you're not a Christian today, just look at that power. How many self-help books try to get you to be someone you're not? Someone you want to be? What's it based on? It's based on human effort that always fails. This is based on the effort of God. And it works. You can trust in His power. And you can live in hope knowing that just as Paul said in chapter 1, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the power of the one thing. Now, we're not going to go there today because it'll be for Easter. But in the next verse, Paul gets even more practical, even more Sunday school basic in verse 5. Same word, too. He says, have this mind which is yours in Jesus Christ. He says essentially, you know who I'm modeling this after. Come on. Jesus, look what he did. Look how he did it. Look who he was. Look who he became for your sake. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love that. He says we can adopt the same mindset that Jesus himself had when he emptied himself of his divine privileges. He took on a body, human, weak, broken, and he emptied himself even further to the point of death. And that on a Roman cross for us. He died, he rose, and now he has a kingdom. We can adopt that mindset. We can. Jesus has blazed the trail and given us the power to do it. To make the one thing, our one thing. Is this your one thing? At Calvary, this will remain the one thing. For the rest of its existence, the one thing. It's so good. It's so good to be loved by God. It's so good to be a follower of the one whose blood cleanses us from all sin. Just remember that. That every time you slip up, every time you get anxious, every time you do something that you've tried to stop doing countless times, every single time, there's forgiveness available. There's cleansing available. How good is that? It's so good. It's so good to know the presence of the Spirit of God that, because of what Jesus has done, is with us at all times forevermore. And He's the one who empowers us collectively for this mission that God has called us to as a community. Let's pray. Dear Father, we just want to bask in your presence wherever each of us is at, Lord. Maybe we know the one thing in our heads, but our hearts just don't get it, don't feel it, feel distant from it. Maybe we we don't believe the one thing. Maybe we just need your presence to remind us every step of the way that we are loved. Maybe we're looking for purpose in life. Maybe we're aimless. Wherever each of us is at, Lord, minister. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each person here during this time of prayer, during this time of singing. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make Jesus real. To each of us. And thank you that you didn't just leave it up to blind faith, but you wrote it down by the hand of eyewitness testimony. This isn't just some fairy tale belief. This was written down, and we have good reason to believe it. But it's not just a thing we believe with our minds, it's a thing we do with our bodies, it's a thing we do with our our entire selves. Thank you that in view of your mercy, God, it makes sense for us to offer our bodies completely at your disposal. Please help us, God, to open our hands, open our lives, open our ears, open our eyes to what you have for us. Even if it's risky, even if it means we are turning our lives around completely to what we've always known, But if Jesus, if Jesus, if you are real, if you really did what you said you would do, and you really rose from the dead, then everything changes. And so it's into your presence, God, that we come this morning, and we ask you to just minister. Touch us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.